0: A warm welcome to everyone who has come today. We're really grateful to see you and hope that this session, as well as the ones that follow, will be very encouraging to you. And again, we invite dialogue. We invite not so much dialogue during the presentation because my time is pretty tight for that. But afterwards, if you have a question, uh, probably the best way is to use the question box. But please feel free to approach me as well in between the meetings. I'm here to help. And if I can help you, I will certainly do that in the Lord's name. Now, we want to look today at the following topics. Worldviews and suppositions is what we call this, the scientific method. Talking about what a worldview is, what presuppositions we bring to the table and what our opponents bring to the table, the role of bias, which is inevitable in any field of human inquiry, and I don't think we'll spend too much time on the postmodernism modernism modernism issue. We touched some of the uh, issues relating to that on Thursday night, but we'll get into the biblical basis of modern science, the scientific method, and then the pretensions of these atheistic people who somehow believe that atheism and science have anything to do with each other. And finally, some perhaps disturbing slides at the end about the ethical implications of Darwinism, including the rank racism that it has engendered over the last 150 years. We begin with the question of worldview. The Germans often have a one word, well, a word that, that takes a whole phrase uh, in English to, equi- to um, equal, their word for a worldview is Weltanschauung, And you'll read that quite a bit in the literature on this subject of worldview. A worldview is a set of beliefs, I promise I won't read my slides, but I'm reading this one, okay? A worldview is a set of beliefs each of us holds about reality. (laughs) These beliefs influence all of our perceiving, thinking, knowing, and doing. Every person, whether it's the butcher or the baker or the candlestick maker, they all have a worldview. They're all philosophers, as we were saying Thursday night. And... One worldview, our, sorry, our worldview will tell us what is real, what is good. Okay, so that slide is supposed to be suppressed. This, these are the bullet points I've just talked about. It's really the lens through which we look. It's not what we see, it's how we see. It's looking through the eyes at reality and having a filter. And I'm going to show you that in a sort of a graphical way in a moment. But again, the big questions that the worldview looks at is what is real? What is good? What is important? What is sacred, if anything? What brings happiness? And these are things that our worldview addresses. Major components of a worldview include, is there a God and what is he like? Theology. What ultimate reality is there? This is the subject of metaphysics. What about knowledge? How can we know anything for sure? We call that epistemology. What about ethics? What should I do? What is right? What is wrong? Are there absolute values that 's what we call axiology, and finally, what is the nature of man? What is he here for? How does he differ from the animal creation? Where is he headed? These are things that our worldview answers for us. So again, a worldview is like the pair of glasses i 'm looking through it 's the things that I assume when I looked and see reality, and it 's how I interpret the things that I see. Who am i we 've already talked about some of these things now. In our world, there are many worldviews. I just threw up a bunch of them, and some of them are religious, and some of them are irreligious. And notice that uh, this Venn diagram shows that there is an overlap, and certainly there are overlaps. There are things that different worldviews might agree on. Now, there is a difference primarily between Christianity and every other worldview. Other worldviews are ultimately incoherent. Only the worldview that comes from the God who is himself Logic, who is coherent, who is truth. That worldview is the only one that will stand the test of close scrutiny. A worldview has to be, if we're really going to be hard on ourselves and analyze our own worldview and say, does it really match up? Does it, does it add up? It's got to be consistent. That is, it has to be able to take all the data and not come up with contradictory views. It must make everything match and everything show that it is part of a greater truth and a greater reality. It has to be comprehensive in that way. It must take care of every piece of data that we encounter. And ultimately, as I put on this slide, it has to be coherent. It's got to make sense of reality. It's got to show that there is a meaning and a purpose to reality. And Christianity has the very ingredients to come up with a comprehensive, consistent, and coherent worldview. Because it answers these big questions very adequately. Who am I? The Bible says I'm made in God's image. After his likeness, I resemble him. I represent him in the world. But I am a sinner. And I'm in need of salvation. Naturalism, of course, says I'm nothing but a cosmic accident. I have no worth. I have no significance. Where did I come from? The Bible worldview tells me I am foreknown by God. I have been created by God. I have a purpose. Of course, there is no purpose in naturalism. Why am I here? I am here to know, love, serve, and glorify God, ultimately. I do that through serving and loving others. Human relationships should reflect my ultimate responsibility to God himself. But if I'm a naturalist, I have no purpose in life. There's nothing linear in life. There's no orientation toward a goal. We spin our wheels until we die. Where am I going? We know there's a heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned. But of course, if I don't believe in the Bible or in the God of the Bible, then I believe that I'm an accident and I'm going toward annihilation. There is a little bit of a consolation knowing that I'm actually stardust, though. I'm not just dust. I'm stardust. And that's very special. But apart from that, it really is a a philosophy of despair. What defines morality? Well, God, of course, ultimately is the standard of morality, and every human being knows there's a standard of morality and holds others accountable to it and makes excuses why he or she doesn't personally match up to it. Showing the fact that we all know there's a morality, there must be a standard. We have one, our God, but, of course, there's no way to provide an objective basis for morality if you're a naturalist? And to whom am I accountable? This is perhaps one of the most important questions because the whole reason to jettison a Christian worldview and to adopt an atheist worldview is that you get out from under the obvious responsibility you would have towards your creator. And so, God, I am to be judged, my motives and my actions, by the God who made me. But, of course, if I'm a naturalist, I'm accountable to no one. Now, of course... people who are Christians get up and go to work and they put in their time and they spend time with their family and do things on weekends. And people who are not Christians do the same thing. And those who were in the field of science may be Christians and they may be non-Christians. And they may be very good scientists if they're not a Christian and they may be very good scientists if they are. In many ways, they overlap in that middle segment. And there's really not a big distinction whether you're a biblical person or a natural person. That is, whether you hold a theistic or an atheistic worldview... A lot of the things that we're doing in our day-to-day lives, it really doesn't seem to matter that much. But when we ask the ultimate questions, as you see, how did things come to be? Then there are dramatically different answers. We're going to come back to that when we talk about the difference between operational science and so-called origin pseudoscience. Okay? Hold on to that thought. The thing is, though, your worldview is going to strongly influence how you look at data. In the middle we have a fossilized animal and we have to ask, how did it become fossilized? When did it become fossilized? When was it created? And the answers to those things will very much depend on what the lens is we are looking through. If we are looking through a biblical lens, we see things in a coherent way from the biblical point of view. But of course, if we're naturalists, we're going to see that quite differently. Here's another way to look at it graphically. We have someone with a Bible mentality and one, someone within origin of species mentality, looking at a fossil, the same input, but the output looks quite different. One says this is great evidence for creation, the God who designed this wonderful animal, and the other said, "Oh, great evidence for evolution; it happened on its own." And that is not about the data; it's about how we interpret it. It's about our worldview. Again, not to beat this too much, we have assumptions we bring them to the table, we look at data, we analyze it, we come up with different conclusions. My purpose, of course, here for this afternoon and this evening is to show you that the conclusions that we draw make more sense and are better able to explain the data than the other side. Once again, fossils don't speak. Scientists speak, but science itself doesn't speak. What is said about things is based on one's assumptions and worldview. And if this is, you can see I've found a number of these and couldn't decide which one to keep, so I'm showing you them all. In fact, I'm not even done yet, okay? These are, of course, stolen from Answers in Genesis website. Looking at the world through the Bible lens, we see, uh, this isn't the Bible lens, of course, this is the naturalist lens. Millions of years, suffering, extinction, killing, disease, pain, struggle, and death. Life coming from non-life by magical, spontaneous generation. Whereas... The Christian looking through, and if he's a good answers in Genesis person, he knows his seven C's, so he's going to talk about creation and corruption and catastrophe and confusion and Christ and the cross and the consummation. What I want to talk about now is the biblical basis for modern science. Again, we need to take away some ground. We need to take back some ground from our opponents, especially today when there is this very confused idea that science and atheism are somehow allied to each other and somehow support each other. There's a book called The Devil's Delusion by David Berlinsky, who is a, 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 really a secular Jew, and he's a very, very, very bright man. He's one who does not believe in Darwinism for mathematical reasons. And he wrote a book called The Devil's Delusion. The scientific pretensions of atheists. Science not only has nothing to do with atheism, science would never have got off the ground if people were atheistic. Atheists are Christian atheists. They must borrow Christians world, Christianity's worldview, as we were saying yesterday, and Christianity's principles in order even to argue against Christianity. Now, we're going to show that science in its full-fledged form, the kind of powerful tool, self-correcting mechanism we have today, is a Christian construct. And could never have arisen in any other worldview but ours. And this is very important because we're doing some historical correction and we're counterbalancing the revisionism that you're going to get in many historical accounts uh, of the scientific method. Now some people say of course the Hindus had some insight. They after all decided that zero is a number and that was an extraordinarily important advance in mathematics. And the Muslims did have a flowering, although I have to say nothing, of course, against uh, those who are Muslims in any respect. I may say this with all respect. The so-called flowering of science under Islam, when things like algebra, which is an Arabic word, of course, were first advanced and explained, were actually done by the people who were allowed to live under the Moorish reign, particularly of Islam. They were Nestorian Christians, and they were Jews. So even the flowering of science briefly under Islam, which was a very short flowering, was a result of those who were allowed to live, the Dami, they called them, and they were basically Jewish and Christian peoples. So even there, we see that the Christian worldview was essential for the beginning of science. We begin with the bacon, And we're going to talk about two Bacons today who are not related to each other. The first is Roger Bacon, and of course, we're going to see an unrelated Francis Bacon in a moment. Well, we're pretty close to home here. This is Merton College, Oxford, 1213. Roger Bacon, a Christian, is thought to be the father of the scientific method and the study of nature through observation and experimentation. For many, many hundreds and even thousands of years, people who were in science believed in the Greek ideas of Aristotle, and we're going to see that all the way up through the time of Galileo, that was the prevailing view. Again, Galileo did not oppose the church, and the church did not oppose Galileo on theological grounds. Rather, the scientists of the day opposed Galileo, and they held sway over the church, So it is actually Galileo against false science. And that is another correction of an historical misunderstanding because they think Galileo is a martyr on their side. He's one of ours. Roger Bacon wrote a book, his greater work, Opus Maius. And in in this book, he laid down seven principles. He talked about obstacles to real wisdom and truth and causes of error. The relationship between philosophy and theology. Holy scripture, he said, is the foundation of all the sciences. He had a large section on linguistics and Bible languages, for which he was quite an expert, mathematics and the reform of the Julian calendar, optics and the anatomy of the eye and brain. And one of the things that Roger Bacon was able to show was that you could split white light into red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. The rainbow. Now, the church said the rainbow is a magical thing. It's it's a miracle from God because after all it was given after the flood as a sign in the sky. Roger Bacon said, yes, God is the one who put the bow in the sky, but he does it through ordinary physics. And if you take a lens or a prism, you can separate white light into its different colors. It's not a miracle. It's a natural phenomenon, and we should be investigating these natural phenomena. And of course... He had much to say about moral philosophy and ethics. Now, the man who took this to the next level is, again, an unrelated Bacon, Francis Bacon, who was, of course, an attorney general under Queen Elizabeth I. Again, uh, another English university nearby, but not as close, Cambridge. He developed this idea of observation, objective measurements, and inductive reasoning. We'll have more to say about that later. Again, I'm introducing these people at this point. Knowledge is the rich storehouse for the glory of the Creator and the relief of man's estate. A little philosophy inclineth man's mind to atheism, but depth in philosophy bringeth man's minds about to religion. In his, uh, this Naum Arganum is actually a play off of Aristotle's Organon. He's making corrections now in the misconceptions of the Platonists and the Aristotelians. To keep scientists from misleading themselves, he promoted deep skepticism and methodological experiments that followed a certain line of reasoning that would be self-correcting. At the same time, he showed that implicit faith in the special revelation of the Word of God was absolutely compatible with that. Now we're going to take a little time to talk about the Reformation because if these people that were around the time before the Reformation, Roger Bacon and just around the time the Reformation was started, Francis Bacon, if they began and codified some of the material that we now call the scientific method, we need to give great credit to the Reformers. And we're going to show why it was the Reformation that really got modern science off the ground. I say again, it was not the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was the endarkenment. The Enlightenment did nothing to advance science. Science was a construct of Bible-believing Christianity. Christianity. Here we have the fabulous five, according to this slide anyway. Wycliffe, Jan Hus from uh, Bavaria or from from Czechoslovakia, and of course, known to us, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Tyndale. A slide that's a bit blurry, but I loved it because it showed the uh, sort of chain of custody of truth going down over many, many generations. Here we have Daniel. You say, what's Daniel doing there? Because uh, Hippolytus was the man in the early church period who believed that the 70 weeks of Daniel were real, prophetic weeks of years and had the same understanding we have. And so Daniel's prophecy is brought forward on the other side of the cross to the Apostle John, Hippolytus, Joachim, Wycliffe, Luther, Knox, Newton, handing off the torch to Wesley and, of course, those of us who are fortunate enough today to be the recipients not only of the transmission of Scripture but of also the principles on which science is based. So let's look at this a little more closely. What do you need to do good science? First of all, you have to believe in objective truth. You have to believe there's a rational universe. There has to be something that you can pursue and know for sure based on first principles, the law of identity, the law of non-contradiction. These are basic things that even if we don't know the names of them, we all assume as we think. But there's no reason in any other worldview why there would be objective truth and rationality because those are not material things. Those are things that transcend material and they belong to a transcendent God. He is the truth, John 14 and 6. You must believe that the universe is real. You say, well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? No, it isn't. There are philosophies that believe the universe is an illusion and there's no point studying an illusion. So you have to kind of believe the universe is real. And, of course, we know Genesis 1:1 tells us God created the heavens and the earth. The universe is orderly, and we're going to say much more about that later. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, let all things be done decently and in order. That's a very different context. But, of course, it teaches us that our God is a God of order, and we see that majestically in his creation. You have to believe that free thought is possible, that it is possible for people to be rational and to inquire and to be able to come to their own conclusions. This idea of free thinking came partly about through the perspicuity of Scripture and the idea that a person can be a personal Bible student coming out of the Reformation, that God's truth was accessible to anyone, anyone willing to put forth the effort. God can be known in his works. This must not be overlooked that one of the great motivations, the great incentives to do science was to find God in his works and to glorify Him. We'll see some explicit statements about that in just a moment. Finally, God told us to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth, to have dominion, to dress and to keep, and all of these things we should take seriously. We should be stewards of the creation. We should care in a Bible way, not in a radical environmentalist way, but in a Bible stewardship way. We should care about the environment. We should care... About God's creation. Yes, I know it's heading toward destruction and our purpose here is not to fix it but to rescue people out of it. But despite that, we still have the responsibility God gave us as human beings to care and to dress and to keep this earth. Part of that is to pursue it and to understand it in scientific ways. So we come to Copernicus now, the Prussian mathematician and astronomer and economist who taught us there was such a thing as a heliocentric Solar system. Now, what that really means is that the center of mass of the solar system lies in the sun. We said yesterday, what spins around what is a relativistic idea. But nevertheless, it's most convenient and obvious for us to think about our planet as in the gravitational pull of the sun itself, the center of mass, along with the other nine planets, or eight planets, whichever you prefer. The universe, he says, has been wrought for us by a supremely good and orderly creator. Copernicus went against the Platonists and against the old um, ideas of Ptolemy. Interestingly, his, his planetary motion didn't work as well as Ptolemy's did, even though Ptolemy's was false. And the reason for that is he didn't understand that the orbits of the planets were elliptical. That would take another man, we're going to meet in a moment, um, but very, very much a man who was pursuing God in his creation, Nicholas Copernicus, I've already talked to you about Galileo a little bit. Galileo was known for several things, including what he saw with his telescope. He looked into the telescope and he saw sunspots. The first person, apparently, who had ever seen that. But the church wasn't amused at all because God is perfect and his sun doesn't have any spots. Okay. He looked at Venus and he said, you know, Venus goes through phases like the moon. No... The church said Venus must be perfectly round because God only makes things that are perfectly round. And you can see how these crazy ideas and these presuppositions were just stalling science from proceeding. But Galileo is very strong in saying God is known by nature in his works and by doctrine in his revealed word. Kepler, he's the one who figured out that these orbits were actually ellipses you can still um, get, they're basically all transections of a cone, right? In one way or another, looking at it from the top. It can be a circle, but in this case, it's actually an ellipse. Laws of planetary motion, mathematical language of science, a very brilliant man. The harmony in the universe, he said, is a sacred sermon, a veritable hymn to God the Creator, O God, this is a very famous statement from Kepler, O God, I am thinking thy thoughts after thee. And now we come to Isaac Newton, who wrote more about theology than he did about science, who was a premillennialist, who was a young earth creationist, who himself estimated the age of the earth at 6,004 years old. He did all of these things independently of Bishop Usher. We may talk about that a little tomorrow. Uh, A man of deep faith, and I said already, who had much more interest in theology than he actually did in mathematics and science. Nevertheless, this man, a polymath, uh, pretty much invented calculus simultaneously with Gottfried Leibniz and gravity and classical mechanics and optics and you know the rest of the story. He said, no sciences are better attested to to than the science of the Bible. Don't doubt the creator because it is inconceivable that accidents alone could be the controller of this universe. This most beautiful system, Newton went on to write, of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as Lord over all, and on account of his dominion, he is wont to be called Lord God. We could go on and on, but it is amazing how many of these men were not only nominal Christians, but were actually committed Bible-believing, born-again believers. Robert Boyle, the father of chemistry, was a gospel preacher who spent most of his time as an itinerant evangelist and happened to do chemistry on the side. All right? Boyle's Law. And this is an example. And so we have a great legacy and we should never forget, forget it, first of all, and, and should never cede ground to people who believe somehow that religion some, in some way impedes the progress of science. It is the only way science could get going. And its principles are the only thing upon which science could be based. Now, I made a new slide. I keep making slides all the time. This is one of the issues why uh, Merv, who's <laughs> was putting these together for me a minute ago, was um, also trying to start hymns at the same time. <laughs> Oxford. Dominus... Illuminatio mea. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 27. That is the motto of this great university that is nearby. It goes back to the 1100s. And I wrote down the names of some great Christians who have been associated with Oxford University through the years. Now, my real slide collection has to do with American universities, but I had to throw this in because of where I am today. All right. As you know, the great... Uh, Ivy League universities in the United States were all theology colleges, were all established for the training of preachers of the gospel. Um, Harvard, for example, has this, in three pieces, veritas, truth. But the real motto of Harvard University when it was formed was veritas Christo et ecclesiae, the truth of Christ or truth for Christ and the gospel. That's the motto of Harvard. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. And therefore to lay Christ in the bottom is the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom, let one seriously set himself by prayer and secret to seek it of him. Proverbs 2 and 3, that is in the charter of Harvard University. My point now in these next slides is to show that not only was Christianity the basis of science in general, but it was the basis of the concept of the university. University, that you could take diverse disciplines and somehow come up with a unified concept of reality. You go to this class and that class and another class, and what you're supposed to do is bring them together into some sort of coherent story, narrative, that tells you about reality. Well, Harvard became too too liberal, and so in New Haven, Connecticut, Yale University was formed in 1701, looks at veritas, means light and truth, and in the very uh, coat of arms here, we have Urim, Vatumim, the Urim and the Thummim. In other words, the lights, the ways of the, that God gave Moses and the high priest, and particularly to know his will, is built right into the very charter of the school. A school wherein youth may be instructed in the arts and sciences and through the blessing of Almighty God may be fitted for public employment, both in church and civil state. Now, the next one is a very self-serving one, uh, but I had to throw my own alma mater in there. Again, though, the idea of that religion and morality and knowledge go together is ultimately with these ancient, not ancient, from your point of view, this is very young, but I'm talking about originally these were Christian institutions. Now we're going to talk about the scientific method, which I have now argued for 25 minutes, is a result of belief in the Bible. Just a couple of slides to define what science is. The systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experimentation. There's another definition which says pretty much the same thing. And a third one, And I probably didn't need all three of these. The observation, identification, description, experimental investigation, and theoretical explanation of the phenomena, the things you see out there, the things that can be observed. So the scientific method, just to be simple about it, has a few basic steps. First is the recognition and formulation of a problem. And then the collection of data through observation and experiment. And then the formulation and testing of an hypothesis. And then the construction of a theory once additional information has shored up your hypothesis so that you believe you now have a theory uh, that is a truth that can be tentatively taken as reality. And then, whoops, that's not supposed to be in there. And then you go back to the beginning. Now this is a little bit small perhaps to see from the back, but this shows the idea of a question, background research, hypothesis, experiment. Get some data, look at the data. Do they support the hypothesis? If so, Report the result, publish, right? Uh, But if not, then you go back. This is self-correcting. And you see, what's wrong with my hypothesis? Why doesn't it accord with the data I see? So really, science becomes a circle. It should be a circle. You begin with... Well, you should not begin with a theory, although if you do, it'll still work because you're still going to have to come around and get data to support it. You predict what you think your theory shows or should show. And then, if it does show that, you've verified it. If not, it needs to be corrected, The observations, of course, allow us to create or modify the theory. And again, I had another depiction of that. My point here isn't that you look at all of these and remember what order they come in, but remember that this should be a self-correcting constant flow so that we become closer, we come closer and closer to the truth. Science, however, is limited. It cannot answer many, many things. This is one of the great fallacies, I think, that many people in the world today think about. They say, well, to know anything for sure, you must know it from a scientific point of view. In fact, some people say you can't know anything for sure if it is not scientific. They say that no claims are true but the scientific claims. What's wrong with that statement? That statement itself is not a scientific claim. It's a philosophical claim. Therefore, by its own rules, it is meaningless. You must start with something other than science. Science is only one way to look at the phenomena, and it's only one way to garner truth. If you were going to try to prove that George Washington exists, or that, uh, you know, that um, I have to think of some example over here. You know, that, that uh, the Queen Henry the uh, King, Queen Henry the Eighth. Excuse me, King Henry the Eighth uh, had uh, so many wives. How would you How would you do that? Well, you're not. There's no scientific way to do that. There's no experiment that can be done. There's no direct observation. You need to go through documents. You need to go through testimony. You need to go through historical research, a very valid way of getting to truth that gets at things that science can't touch. So we're going to look at some of the limitations of the scientific method before we look at it in more detail. Science can't answer metaphysical questions. They're completely outside the scope of science. Does God exist is not a scientific question. You can argue, as we've already done, that a God must exist for science to make any sense and to proceed, but science itself cannot answer that question. Is the external world, world real? Uh, this is one of those silly things that you get in philosophy class when you're a vulnerable freshman. Did the universe begin five minutes ago with the appearance of age? Okay. Are you all duped? Do I exist? Do you exist? And we're solipsists, you know, all this ridiculous stuff that I suppose gets uh, young philosophy professors' tenure but the rest of us think is stupid. Um, These are questions that you can ask and you can answer, but you're not going to find a scientific way to approach them. Science cannot do anything with aesthetics. Aesthetic judgments are not material judgments. Is this sunset beautiful? Is the Guggenheim Museum ugly? You don't know what the Guggenheim Museum is. I will change it. Is the Scottish National Parliament building ugly? And the answer is a resounding yes. Yes. Should collages of pictures be grouped in odd or even numbers? Now, your mother-in-law might have a very firm view on that, but uh, science can't touch that. Science can't prove historical truths. Did Christ rise from the dead? Did George Washington chop down his father's cherry tree? Again, these are American examples. Did Lee surrender to Grant at Appomattox? That was the conclusion of the American Civil War in 1865. These are important questions to some people, but they're not scientific questions. Science has no way to answer ethical questions. Should I cheat on my income tax? Is abortion murder? Science can answer that the conceptus from the moment of conception is an independent human being with a distinct genetic code and an independent life. It can answer that question. But it can't answer whether we should kill that infant. That's an ethical question. Should the state support people who refuse to work? These are important questions, but they cannot be answered by science. Science cannot answer teleological questions. That's questions with an end, questions with a purpose. To explain the goal of something or the reason for something, science has no way to approach that. Why am I here? What's the purpose of my nose? Why is silicon the second commonest element in the Earth's crust? These are questions that are why questions, and science is no good at why questions. Science can't prove logic or mathematics. It must presuppose them. It cannot prove its own scientific method, as we've already said. To use science to prove science is circular reasoning. Science must justify its methods on philosophical grounds, as we've been doing already. And I'm saying on biblical grounds, no other ground will justify the scientific method. Therefore, we say, as a conclusion to this part of the talk, Darwinism is outside the scope of science. It is not science, it is pseudoscience because origins cannot be put through the scientific method circle that I showed you earlier. It cannot be observed in the present. It cannot be measured. It cannot be repeated in experiments. It cannot be shown to be true or false in that way. It is not self-correcting. It is a backward projection based on worldview glasses, right? Presuppositions and assumptions which cannot be proven. Well, we're going to say much more about that later, but I want to just make this point here with a wordy slide. The origin of the universe and life are by definition one-time unrepeatable events. One-time unrepeatable events are outside the scope of science. Further, no one has ever seen any of the organisms evolve from a lower form into a higher form, as we said before. Speciation has never been observed in that sense. Horizontal speciation, yes. Vertical speciation, no. And if you're not sure what I mean by that, we're going to talk about that later. Since evolution has not been observed in the laboratory, it is outside the scope. I've already said that. Therefore, it is a matter of faith. But unlike the creationist's faith, the evolutionist's faith involves irrational presuppositions that do not square with the data. And of course, it's my task to prove that to you. I want to spend a minute talking about the difference between deduction and induction. And I know this might seem like a a snoozer and a uh, sure way of putting everyone to sleep, but I don't think so. I've got some birds to show you. I like birds, so that's what I'm going to use in a minute. But I think we need to understand, as we said Thursday night, the only thing you can know for sure are the things that God tells you. When God tells you something, the perfect God, the perfect truth, the perfect communicator, he makes sure that that repository of truth comes to you through his word, he verifies it through his spirit, you have an unassailable piece of truth. From that truth, you can deduce. And if you follow the rules of logic, your deductions are unassailable. They are infallible. Why are they infallible? Because number one, your premise is true. Number two, the rules of logic are true. Therefore, you will always come to the proper conclusion. But science, of course, has no way to do that. And even as a Christian scientist, we don't make those assumptions. We don't say we know what reality is like. That's what we're trying to prove. So we cannot begin with dogmatic statements. We must begin with looking at things. And we have particulars and we see this and we see that and we say well, these things are alike or they're, we compare and contrast them and we try to come up with some principles and then we work those together into experiments and we finally come up with what we think is true, a theory. If that theory is true, we can make deductions from that theory. But since that theory is a human invention, it's not as infallible as the Word of God, and it may, in fact, ultimately prove to be false. And science has shown that many, many times. All right, so let's try to get a little bit more specific. Again, this is just very basic. Deductive reasoning has premises. You've seen these together. These are called syllogisms. All men are mortal is a self-evident statement, although it is not absolutely true because the Lord Jesus was not mortal in that sense. But apart from Christ, let's accept that we all believe that's true because we show that the human frame as it has been fallen and marred by sin, is subject to death. Socrates was a man. Uh, again, that's a self evident statement. Therefore, Socrates was mortal. That's unassailable. Assuming your major and minor premise are both true, the conclusion must be true. Now, that says the same thing. It isn't always like that. Uh, we, t- we still try to do deductions sometimes from things that cannot be proven absolutely. All many pretzels. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates eats pretzels. Is that logically valid? The answer is yes, it's logically valid. You say, but it's not true. Yes, but you can have something logically valid that's not true. Why is it not true? Because premise number one is not true. Now, why am I going through this? Because that is how science proceeds. It comes up with these kinds of statements. They are are actually garnered from what we call inductive reasoning. So we're going to talk about this Uh, Perhaps we will not talk about all these things. I'm going to move through this. Science ultimately will be felled by the inductive fallacy. Bertrand Russell, a great philosopher and atheist from this country, was very, very frank and honest about this, that nothing that science ever says can be known absolutely to be true because of the inductive fallacy. Again, the difference is this. Induction begins with particulars, It assembles them together, tries to make a story, and comes up with a general truth. But in order to know all the particulars, you would have to be God. You would have to know everything perfectly. You would have to be everywhere in the universe at once, and you would have to know everything from the beginning of time to the end. You would absolutely have to account for every piece of data, and no human will ever even approach that. So therefore, induction is always in danger of the swan problem. Now, I'm gonna illustrate this in a very, I think, obvious way, and hopefully it will drive our simple message home. This is a mute swan. We have these in the U.S., we imported them from you, and uh, we thank you very much. They're attractive birds, although, as I'm going to show, there are even better swans out there. Um, this is a whooper swan from Eurasia, and this is, the, uh, to my mind, the grandest of all the swans, the trumpeter swan from North America which only moves through my area twice a year on its way north and on its way south. We don't get them as permanent inhabitants, but Canadians do. It's the largest swan with the largest wingspan, and it has a pure black bill, as you see. There's a variant of that called the tundra swan in farther reaches of the north. And what have I just shown you? I've shown you four different types of swans, and what do they have in common besides being birds? They're all white. So I have looked at all the swans in my little you know, area of observation, my little world, and I've concluded all swans are white. This is how science proceeds, okay? We're going to come up with a hypothesis. All swans are white. Now, that is true in North America. It's true in Asia. It's true in Europe. But is it really true? Have I accounted for every piece of data? And the answer is, oh, no, no. <laughs> I haven't, because I forgot about the Southern Hemisphere. This is one of the problems with us Northern Hemisphere people. We ignore this out. Well, if we were to go south of the equator, we would find there's a black swan in Australia. And in fact, if we go in the South American part of the Americas, we find this black-necked swan. So what have I shown you? That my theory was blown out of the water, pardon the pun, by the fact that I came up with data that I had no knowledge of. But when they finally became available to me, they showed that my hypothesis was wrong. Darwinism masquerades as a neutral science when, in fact, it operate and it, it pretends to operate inductively. in fact, it is unabashedly, unashamedly, in your face, deductive, which means it begins with the premise of materialism, it begins with the premise there is no God, and from there it draws its conclusions. That is illegitimate science, It's illegitimate philosophy and we need to call them on it. You don't start with a belief in atheism and materialism, which have nothing to do with the core mission of science. You begin with an open mind. And as I say, when they talk about what they believe and use the arguments that they do, they are using God's logic. They're stealing from our worldview to try to refute our worldview. Their commitment to atheism, or at least to the irrelevance of God, and their allegiance to naturalism, with a total ban... On supernatural explanations in science is a pure, we dream this up, a priori assumption. It has nothing to do with truth, and it is unprovable. Since Darwinism operates in that way, it is demonstrably a religion. It's an atheistic religion, but a religion nonetheless. It requires faith, it is chock full of bias, and its premises are false because... It is illegitimately operating as a deductive method. I hope I made that reasonably clear. All right, now we're going to revisit something else here, and I just want to reinforce this with two slides. This is the difference between origin science, or what I'm going to call pseudoscience, and real science. Okay. Again, when people are operating as scientists in the laboratory, how things work today, there's no problem. But when they leave the experiment... They leave the bench, they leave the, the, the field of investigation where they're doing their experiments, and they begin to get, go back to their armchairs and just start to philosophize and think. They're no longer scientists. Well, they might be scientists, but they're not operating as those. So let's look at this a little more carefully. The real sciences are physics, chemistry, biology, and the like. Why are they real sciences? Because they are based on experimentation, observation, data collection... Interpretation, hypothesis generation, theorizing, retesting, publishing, critique, redemonstration of something, and finally, when everyone agrees that this is the way things are, then we can call it a scientific theory and do some deduction from that. All right, how do we know we use the scientific method? Is that a good method? If it's applied pr- pr- properly, it is a very good method. And our level of quality, our quality of, uh, of, of truth is going to be of very high quality. I'm not saying that clearly our, our conclusions are going to be of high quality. And our worldview has a very little impact on that, whether I'm a Christian or an atheist. If I'm doing science properly, it doesn't really matter. When we talk about origin science, so-called, this, we're no longer looking at things that are ongoing, but they're single past events. I'll read these since they're small print. We're not talking about things I can repeat and demonstrate, but non-repeatable by definition. We're not talking about things that can be observed, but things that are not observable. And therefore, although I can be quite sure how things work using the scientific method, I have no idea how things came to be using the philosophies of people with their reconstruction and a low certainty of arriving at absolute truth. No certainty of arriving at absolute truth. Well, how then can I know how things came to be? Well, I can always go back to the perfect way of knowing anything. I can go to Revelation, and then I have perfect certainty about this. But I could never arrive at that from the fallible minds of men. It comes down to this very simple point. If you were going to go back to the beginning of time and find out how things really began, whom would you ask? You could ask, the God who was there, who actually did the creating, who is infallible, who will not lie, who is the perfect communicator who has told you how things began. You could do that. Or you could go to the fallible, sinful, biased minds of humans who were enemies of God and enemies of truth and who are doing everything they can to steer you away from God and the worship of God and the knowledge of God who were not there, who have no idea what happened. You could ask them. I was obviously being facetious in how I worded that. But is, like, what choice is that? Of course we're going to believe the one who is truth. Science is the self-scientism. I changed the word now. So I've now now we're just for a few minutes as we close down this session. We're going to talk of the difference between scientism, and the religion. We've already talked about science. we talked about good science. Now we're going to talk about scientism for a minute. The self-annihilating view that only scientific claims are meaningful. I've said this already. I'm going to repeat it. Look at that phrase. Think about it. If only scientific claims are meaningful, we ask, is that claim scientific? And the answer is no. This is not a scientific claim. It's not something that can be subject to experimentation. It is a philosophical claim. But the claim says only scientific claims are meaningful. Therefore, this claim is not meaningful or it's not true. This is a classic case of self-destruction. This is a self-refuting statement. And therefore... The cartoon tries to make some hay from that. Just a quick chart here to um, draw out these things a little bit more carefully. Scientism begins... Not science. You're with me now. Not science. Scientism, the religion, says there is no God. The natural world is the whole of reality. We, of course, believe that God is the ultimate reality, and he made the natural world and everything in it. He is not part of that world. Knowledge of the world can be obtained entirely through the methods of science, We've shown that that's a self-refuting statement. But the methods of science, according to theism, are extremely useful. In fact, they're based on God's principles, but revelation provides the surest knowledge of reality and will trump every other method. Scientism says the universe itself and the life it contains are accidental and have no purpose. We believe that God created the universe and that the life it contains has purpose. Again, it comes down to this. Faith in the mind of men, absurd, since that mind arose by chance. If, in fact, what they say is true, their very mind arose by the random meanderings of evolution. It has nothing to do with standards, with rigid thinking, with linear progression. It's simply chaos. And how are you going to believe a brain that's chaotic in its very origin? Whereas faith in a rational God is based on universal principles of truth. So, while we're just about done, I'm going to flip through these. I want you to understand that we are now approaching what the... Fallacy experts call the big lie. It is something that is not true, but it is told with great bravado and confidence. You can fool some of the people all of the time. Satan tried this on Eve and was successful. You shall not surely die. You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. You've just won a $100,000. Click here. Forward this to everyone you know. Satisfaction guaranteed. You have a long-lost uncle in Nigeria. And if you will only give your bank information, you will have $10 million or pounds promptly added to your account. And here's another nice one I found. Billions of years ago, the oceans were warm and teeming with the building blocks of life. About six million years ago, our human ancestors migrated out of Africa. About 350,000 years ago, the Neanderthals proved no match for modern humans who had invented art And learn to use fire and make tools due to their superior intelligence. Nothing in evolution, nothing in biology makes sense apart from evolution. Blah, blah, blah. I'm just calling it what it is. This is all bravado. It is all the inventions of men, not based on the hard facts of science. Science has shown there is no God. Science has disproved the Bible. We know that that can't be true because we've already seen that science can't approach those questions. What that really means is that proud scientific fools have decided in their heart that there is no God or that the gullible worshipers of scientism have dismissed the Bible without reading it or examining the evidence for its inerrancy. And I bring that slide up again. I think because I'm at the hour, I will stop. I have a very brief set of slides on the ethical implications of Darwinism, um, which we will begin with after the break. So... Let us now commit our first session to the Lord and ask his blessing on the balance of the day as well as give thanks for the refreshment.